You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske and Sam Gartner designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. This is the last part, the third part of the recording of the episode number 200, which we have done live. If you want to see it actually, you know, all of us discussing, then you can head over to theeffectivestatistician.com and find the video there. Have fun. It's rapid fire, 10 minutes per guest. And so it's really, really fast and fun. Uh, we head over to a guest and a listener. Hi, Imi. How are you doing? Alex, congratulations on 200 episodes. I was looking at your post earlier on LinkedIn. So uh, maybe I start off with the question is, uh, where's the merch, man? I was expecting, you know, some hoodies or celebratory hats or something. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, we are actually working on this in the background. So um, there's now a lot of opportunities to do this in a, in a really nice way. And um, yeah. You can probably get your the effective statistician cup uh, in the future, so uh, stay tuned for 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 this one. Oh, if you need an excessively blonde and luminescent person to model a hat, I'm I'm always available. Let me know. <laughs> that is awesome. Since we recorded our uh, podcast episode, which is uh, some time ago. Um, you have changed roles. Uh, at the time, you were focusing very much on real-world evidence. And in your new role at Kite, you now drive much more kind of strategic things as well. So um, one of the things that we recently talked about um, are strategic evidence plans. So... Um, can you shortly explain to the listener what that is? Yeah, sure. And it's it's actually quite a natural. Uh, it's quite a natural, and I, I wouldn't even say a change really. So, one of the aspects I think that 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 you know, uh, epidemiologists or, or <laughs> epidemiologists or statisticians in pharma are exposed to a lot is is looking. You know, is really looking at meaningful data in the context of a clinical development plan. And naturally, over, due to your training and, 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 and experience, you start to see opportunities within that data to answer critical needs uh, for the assets. So the integrated evidence plan and strategic planning is really formalizing that process. It's really looking at your, your, your assets in you know, late phase development from phase two onwards and saying, right, well, what other questions remain unanswered from my trial that will, you know, support regulatory interactions, support patient needs, which is, you know, critically important and support the decision-making for physicians as well. So really the access, the, the, the regulatory aspect, the patient aspect, and it's creating a frame that allows us to, to really be proactive in how we generate uh, data and we generate evidence through, uh, you know, whether that's starting new studies, whether that's mining already existing data sets, whether that's RWE, 
whether that's looking at some of our historical trial data. Um, it really allows a company and a, a development team to position their molecule in the most effective way. So, uh, um, but again, this is a, in, in a strange way, this is really what um, a lot of RW, RWE scientists are doing. Um, they're looking at, the, at all of this uh, messy real life data, piecing it all together and trying to find the right way that it can be integrated within a clinical development program or a, 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 a health technology assessment to really drive that, um, to really either accelerate or solve for, for certain challenges. So I think, yeah, from RWE to this kind of uh, work is, uh, is, is quite natural, I would think. Yeah, yeah. I think it's an area where we as statisticians need to be much more involved. And I've... Over the past uh, years, I've worked with or talked to lots of different people, and it varies actually quite a lot across the different companies, how much people are involved, how much statisticians uh, have a seat at the table. Um, what is, you know, from your experience now, what is your role that statisticians need to play in these, in these discussions? So I think um, it's, it's, it's really interesting for me. Um, I had, um, I've, I've really been fortunate to have, uh, you know, really great managers and mentors throughout my career. And um, one, of the, one of the things my previous manager at Roche, you know, reminded me of daily is drug development is fundamentally a data-driven discipline. Um, the, 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 the development of a drug and the clinical practice of medicine are overlapping, have, have overlaps, but they're also distinct disciplines. And the data scientist is in a really a key position to be able to ascertain and identify how, how a clinical development plan can be augmented and enhanced. So I... Why, why should a statistician or, or, or why are statisticians and data scientists really sort of, uh, you know, uh, key strategic stakeholders for such, you know, conceptions and work? It takes, I think, a certain kind of uh, scientific training to be able to look at a study design or to look at data and think, you know what, there's an opportunity here for some hybrid design or for, or, or, or for a pragmatic study, or we can do, we can, you know, uh, uh, change this endpoint and it will have this impact. And to be able to have this thinking, um, you know, statisticians and epidemiologists already do this daily when, when they're designing studies and things. Um, from a mindset perspective, really, it's understanding and I think coming to coming to terms with the fact that 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 you know your training is it puts you in a really good place to do this kind of uh, to to do these kinds of activities, and it's. Having, I think, the right coaching to really speak up in meetings, to really present an idea, to, to understand that if you're presenting something innovative and new, that, of course, the default sometimes from colleagues will be to stick with the safer approach and not to take these aspects personally. But if you really believe in a, uh, uh, an, an idea or a concept that could really have value for an asset or a program, to learn how to communicate that in a 
in a uh, you know a really effective way to maybe borrow from the name of the podcast um i've seen it before where you present you know maybe 500 different tables and you, you know you kill the clinical team with uh, with p values and, and 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 tables or you can put together a, a beautiful visualization and uh, uh, to, to explain how you can accelerate the program how your method or your your your, your study design works and yeah i think um this is really maybe I think uh, one of the key things one can do to really sort of uh, start having more and more of an impact is really improve those communication skills and how we communicate data. Thanks so much. Yeah, but first kind of understanding that we have skills that others don't have. Okay. Benjamin, Sam, any, any comments from your side? No, not really. Just, just uh, you know, just it's, it's, it's great to see, you know, how people... You know, from you know, like you with with the background, with you know, understanding the data. As we said, we have skill. We have a skill set. How they develop and how to how they like positively put this into into next step in the career and and using the the mindset and using the analytical skill set that you have into doing bigger thing. Or I mean, obviously, you know, with with a similar purpose, you know, in in doing good for the patient and developing. Uh, things it's just it's it's really good to see i mean it's, it's a pleasure <laughs> to see that yeah it seems to me in this area of real world evidence that one of the key challenges is having good data with which you can make a decision and oftentimes the data we have is this uh i guess what i would call as found data you know and how do you put into place plans or structures so that you collect data that really help you answer the question that you want to answer. Have you seen any of that happen? I think you, 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 you raise a very astute point. And, you know, the way that I sort of uh, explain things to colleagues is there is no, there is no one catch-all data set. And as the field has, has expanded um, a lot over the last decade, you know, I, I think we're all aware of various data assets that are being peddled and some of them are, are really deficient. I think it's in essential that again, um, uh, each data set or study is intended to be able to solve a limited number of questions. And there is no one catch-all magical solution that you can sort of uh, license in from a vendor that's going to be able to do everything for you. So it's really ensuring again, and, and the role there of the statistician and the the the, the data scientist is really to be that, uh, really to bring in that methodological training and be able to look past the sales and marketing and, and ask questions around of how are the patients sampled? Um, how, is, how are these outcomes measured? Do you SDV your data? Uh, to be able to run a pilot study and really start to validate the different assets for, um, or the different data assets for different uses. And um, it's... Um, Recently, I think we see this, um, and I say recently, it's become a lot more prevalent now where we see a lot of companies using RWE earlier and earlier in the, in the development plans. And most people default, when you talk about this, most people default to the conception of the external control arm. And what I keep saying to everybody is the external control arm is, is the right approach in a very limited number of settings. But there's also a profound amount of value you can generate without having an ECA. 
looking at your the impact of the inclusion and exclusion criteria of a given clinical trial on your p- uh, potential patient pools, estimating your historical control rate, looking at what your outcomes could potentially be and what uh, endpoints, um, uh, looking at the surrogate endpoints and seeing if they correlate well. There's a myriad uh myriad list of different things RWE can offer drug development and early phase drug development without sort of rushing to the thing that everybody thinks about, which is these, uh, these ECAs. So um, yeah, uh, that's, that's maybe a long-winded answer to your question. Thanks so much. That is a very, very good point. And actually, we will talk more about real-world data and what it, ca- what it can do and what it can entail um, in the next year, especially with the FDA guidance uh, that re- recently came out as mm-hmm. a draft guidance. Thanks so much, Imi, for, for, the, for joining today. And with that, we are moving over to our next guest. And we are nearly on time, only a couple of minutes late, <laughs> according to our uh, schedule. Hi, Karim, how are you doing? Hi, Alexander, how's it going? 200 very, episodes, very wow. Oh, fantastic. I remember when we first, when I first heard about uh, this series, I think we were both at Lily. And yep. you're already well into uh, several, several episodes, but 200 is absolutely fantastic. So many, many congratulations. Thanks so much. But it wouldn't be with, without the other co-hosts I have here on the show and especially all, you know, so many amazing guests uh, along, the, uh, along the time. Um, we had you on the show for um, really advanced analytics, uh, AI, machine learning, yes. and, and these type of things. And um, since we talked, you know, I think the, the trend and these, uh, maybe even call it a hype around, uh, this hasn't, hasn't stopped. Um, what do you see currently as, you know, the, the biggest trends in, in the pharma industry in terms of more advanced analytics? Yeah, so if it's okay, let me, let, let me start by, by addressing perhaps one misgiving. And I think it's, it's, it's really a question of, of, of discourse, of narrative, and it's, it's, it's in the term advanced. Uh, because I, I often uh, have the perception that the term advanced is used as a synonym for complicated, oh, okay. uh, which is used as a synonym for difficult. And sometimes as statisticians, uh, we are very good at, you know, at putting artificial lines in our, uh, you know, domain of knowledge, right? Where, you know, it's, 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 it's a sort of boundary where, you know, that's, 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 that's another discipline, right? And, you know, I have, I have, I have one example. In fact, one of the examples that you posted uh, quite quite recently, and you know, it's one of those vignettes that you had that you had on sort of LinkedIn, where I don't remember exactly what was the story, but it was a statistician and data science having a discussion about a classification method, and the statistician ultimately saying, "Well, effectively, what you've done is a glorified logistic regression." Yes, right, and 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 this is exactly, I think, is exactly correct, but it's not a negative thing; it's a positive thing, in the sense that you know, I think a logistic regression is a beautiful machine learning methods if it's applied within a machine learning framework, right? So instead of running your logistic regression the whole data and getting a p-value, you may want to, you know, split your data in, in testing and training and, you know, 
Uh, yeah. But then yeah. if you can add a couple of parameters and turn it into an SVM, for example, um, and if that helps you to produce a better model uh, that answers a specific question, then why shouldn't you use it? So these methods are not beyond the domain of statisticians. In fact, I would argue that they belong to statisticians because ultimately they're rooted in statistical science. And so when we talk ad about advanced, I really want to sort of qualify and uh, address this misgiving that it's advanced in the training schedule and that it builds on a number of foundations and maybe in the training block uh, and that maybe are uh, newer, right? So they're temporary advanced, but the, they're not, you know, they may require, you know, they may be complicated and they may require some you know, mathematical knowledge, uh, but generally they're more of the same, right? And so advanced doesn't necessarily mean that it's, that they're more difficult. And uh, the, um, the majority of these methods are well within the reach domain and expertise of most statisticians, right? So it takes, it takes a little bit of effort, but I would encourage any statistician to um, you know, to explore them. And even if you don't master them, have an understanding of what these methods uh, can do. And you're right, I think AI, machine learning, again, advanced methods uh, are really sort of growing exponentially. We also see a number of data scientists working closer, I think, with, with, with statisticians. And we see yeah, the impact yeah. of AI and machine learning, I think, across the entire drug development value chain. And I think, as we discussed last time, um, initially the way into, um, I would say the pharma companies is really the flanking areas, right? So the beginning in the discovery process where in particularly high throughput data generating vast amount of, of, uh, of data, then it's, 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 a, it's a ripe territory for these methods. And then, you know, in the sort of post-launch uh, type of application where again, uh, we encounter a large amount of, um, uh, of data, but now what, what we're seeing is that the, at the intersection between, I think, discovery and um, in clinical development, uh, we're seeing more and more application of uh, uh, machine learning and uh, uh, and AI. And um, yeah, uh, I would say there is there's a class of methods that I'm finding very interesting that I would classify as Bayesian machine learning methods. Mm -hmm. And I think these are now ripe. I mean, if, if we kind of look at where these methods are developed, they're, they're generally developed you know, in, in academia, uh, not always, but some of them are. And so if we're looking at trends, maybe that's a natural sp space to kind of look at what's, what's new and what's upcoming and what's ready to be translated to clinical, to clinical development. Uh, and, and I have to say that it's also interesting to see what the software companies are doing because historically, uh, Going back to what we said about being advanced, it is that the, the newer methods generally have fewer packages, uh, less documentation, and required a bit more of uh, programming agility. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but if you're looking at what, for example, SAS is doing, and some of the modules that they are uh, coming in, and the speed in which they are sort of reacting, uh, these methods are becoming more and more accessible. And uh, uh, I do favor and kind of like what I'm seeing in the Bayesian machine learning space. And I can give some examples of some of these, uh, the class of these, of, of these methods that I think are very, very powerful. Uh, one of these methods that I found very interesting is um, uh, Gaussian processes. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, the, the, uh, the ability and performance of Gaussian process to model um, longitudinal data, for example, uh, and make a prediction and um, gaining an understanding of uncertainty, right? Because this is really what sort of these Bayesian methods um, do particularly well, right? They, they provide very good estimates of uncertainty. Uh, as far as I can tell, and in the application that we've used, uh, they seem to outperform almost anything else that we've, uh, that we've seen, and the applications are many. So anytime that we have longitudinal um, data, uh, perhaps with less data to start, and th 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 this, this, I think, it's a, a historical uh, limitation, uh, particularly in the early stages of clinical development, is that you have to start to make predictions um, on newer studies in the absence of, uh, you know, vast amount of data to train your model and to make prediction. And we, we, we touched just, you know, just now on, you know, we can use maybe external data, real world evidence, but often we don't have a lot of data to, to start with, but we have to anchor ourselves uh, into something to start to make some predictions. Um, and Gaussian models I find are very good uh, at adapting quickly. Mm -hmm. We may yep. start with little data or sometimes with no data. For example, we can elicit uh, information from experts and maybe start from there and, you know, as data comes in, they, they adapt quite, quite quickly and often outperform many of the other methods that I've seen. So I find that class of, of, of methods very interesting and I find the application, particularly to clinical development, um, uh, quite wide. Thanks so much, Karim, for, for this outlook. Uh, it gives us a little bit of topics for diving uh, deeper into for in, in the next years. Um, and, you know, the I have often get asked, don't you run out of content here for, for the podcast? And I always think about all these papers that are published out there here. And it just, you know, scratched the surface very often. So um, that's for sure an area where we can dive deeper into in, in the future. And yeah, as you said, it becomes more and more accessible. Thanks, Kimber. Yeah. yeah, no problem. And with that, let's move over to Paolo. Uh, Paolo is also a longtime listener of the Effective Statistician. Hi, Paolo, how are you doing? Alexander, I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Do, do, can you remember when you first reached out to me? Yeah, because I uh, searched in my LinkedIn uh, messages and it was at the end of October 2018. So something like three years ago. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And so that was, you know, within the first half year of our podcast going right. live. And so um, that's quite a, quite a long time ago from, <laughs> from a yeah, podcast live perspective. I was, yeah, I was working uh, in uh, academia and public sector at the time. Then uh, I transitioned uh, in the industry, maybe thanks to the podcast, uh, and uh, thanks to Alexander, maybe. <laughs> that is great. Paolo, yeah, I'm... 
sorry, what, what initiated your, your contact to Alexander? So did you have just a command or like a question or did you listen yeah. to a specific podcast? What, what, no, what I think that uh, I, I was sharing uh, a lot and commenting a lot on LinkedIn, if I remember correctly. And then uh, Alexander asked me uh, uh, a feedback, basically. And uh, he also asked me, for example, uh, what contents do you like? Uh, what contents uh, do you want to like to listen more on the podcast? Uh, and I suggested uh, AI, real-world evidence, uh, biomarkers, stuff like that. And nice. other guests. Yeah. So, and what, and just looking back, so what did you enjoy most and in the podcast type of topics? Uh, I, I think uh, the, the mixture of um, soft skills and um, uh, scientific uh, topics, maybe. Mm. Because, uh, and uh, when I started to listen to the, listening the podcast, for me, working uh, in Italy, public sector, Stuff like, uh, for example, uh, atomic uh, habits, uh, negotiations, uh, uh, focus, you know, suggestions like the uh, book uh, about uh, deep work, uh, stuff like that. Uh, so they were pretty amazing. So I was completely unaware of this kind of uh, literature about uh, uh, focus and uh, good habits. Uh, yeah, it was really, really great. Yeah, also Paolo also joined uh, the Effective Statistician Leadership Program um, and uh, uh, some time ago. And I think that was um, also, you know, we got in contact through that. And um, later on, we even worked together in, in the same At team. Which was really, really nice. Uh, and I have a news for listeners <laughs> that uh, this is my last day at UCB, and uh, tomorrow I will start uh, my new chapter at uh, Modus Outcomes, which is a consultancy firm as associate director of statistics. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I'm also I also like. Uh, really a lot of the life of the PSI in general. So I contribute uh, to the PSI subgroups, special interest group. And I'm also, from time to time, I, I, I submit some data visualization to the visualization special interest group also. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, lots of things that we can talk about in terms of PSI as well. And um, we earlier recorded a, a podcast about exactly about these subgroup topics that will also appear uh, next year. But uh, maybe there's one secret project that Paolo and myself should shortly talk about. And that is something that we have been working kind of as a little bit as a as a side, small side project for, for quite some time. Paolo, do you want to share some news, break the news there? Yeah, there will be a side podcast which will be the data scientist, the effective data scientist podcast. So we will cover uh, a bit more of uh, programming uh, topics, uh, 
uh, advanced uh, AI also a bit more of, uh, you know, everything that can happen in the data science uh, space. And uh, we are planning to have a lot of uh, uh, tutorials and uh, didactical contents, lots of code to be applied uh, Python and R shared on GitHub. Yep, yep. So look out for that. I'm, I'm really happy that at, at some point in the future we'll be able uh, to publish this. And then um, we hope to reach uh, a bigger audience, especially all those that seen themselves predominantly as data scientists and not so much as statisticians. And um, I truly believe there's a lot of overlap there. So um, uh, maybe we can you know, bring in some, some people uh, from that space into this community as well. Um, Paolo, in terms of the, the podcast, what is your... What are a couple of your key learnings from from the from listening to the podcast for so long? Yeah, I think that uh, maybe, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the uh, soft skills uh, topics. So you have uh, uh, suggestions for interesting reading on this stuff, uh, and uh, it's really nice to. Uh, listen to the podcast because uh, you have uh, the control of what's happening in the industry space. I think it's a nice uh, way to have a comprehensive overview of what's happening while you are you know, driving, uh, running. Yep. Yeah, and I think your kind of story is a is a is a great example of how you know you can use this podcast to learn more about what are the other opportunities in, in this career and um, make actually a career change from academia into, into pharma and um, work for a sponsor and now in the future for a CRO, um, which, is, which is really, really good. So um, for all the listeners, take, a, take Paolo as an example of how you know you can be courageous and do something new in your career. Um, look for other opportunities to um, grow uh, outside of your comfort zone, and um, yeah, really benefit from that. Yeah, Thanks, so much. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Paolo. Thanks, Paolo. Bye bye. And with that, we are getting to our last guests of the show. Hi, Jan. Hi, Kaspar. How are you doing? Hi, Alexander. Hi, Benjamin. Doing okay. How are you guys doing? All good oh. here. Thanks. That's, That's a pleasure to have you again. <laughs> that is so, so cool to have you also on the show. And now we're talking about uh, another technical topic. So we have talked about, uh, you know, Things like matching adjusted indirect comparisons and non-parametric uh, already earlier and about um, AI and stuff like this as well. Um, but today, you know, I think we can't really have this podcast without talking a little bit at least about estimates, of course. And um, I think your case and, and your story 
is a really, really successful one uh, in terms of what it means to estimate treatment effects when you have um, differing follow-up times, in, in, especially in, in the oncology area, where you know, the, the better your treatment works, the longer you stay on treatment and see uh, higher the chance that you actually get side effects from it. Um, as well, you know, on, on top of the um, efficacy gains. Um, is that the only problem in terms of, you know, differential um, follow-up times? Or are there other areas we need to have a, have a look into? Yeah, so maybe I can start. You uh, introduced the, the topic very well. Imagine you have a randomized clinical trial and you have... OS hazard ratio of 0.5. So in one arm, patients have double the risk or double the hazard of dying. And now you're interested in, in estimating the probability of an AE in that trial. Um, and if you just count the number of AEs in each arm and divide it by the number of patients, that's not a fair assessment because in that arm where people die at double the hazard, of course, you will have less AEs because you will not observe them because patients are already dead. So that illustrates that varying, having varying follow-up uh, needs to be taken into account. And the other big thing is you might have competing risks. So patients might leave your risk set also for other reasons um, because they go on a different therapy, for example. And also that needs to be taken into account. And uh, one would think, this is, this is not rocket science. And I don't think it is at all because the statistical methods to deal with these challenges, they have been defined and invented 40, 50 years ago. Um, but it seems the pickup and the appreciation in, for example, drug development uh, has not progressed uh, equally quickly. And with the Savvy project, we try to, to make steps in that direction. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And and talking about estimates, Alexander, as Kaspar said, it's not rocket science, it's just common sense. And I think if it were not for all, all the trees, the technical trees, we, we would see the woods, but we don't, because we engage so much into all the technologies, uh, censoring, Kaplan Meyer and whatnot, and uh, then we, we miss the obvious, really. And you just asked whether well, that is the end of the story or whether that is all to it. Um, I mean, these days it's hard to escape the pandemic, right? And um, so I, for instance, never got really got interested in vaccine trials, but I guess these days we all are experts on mask wearing and, and, and vaccination and whatnot. And um, so I looked into vaccine efficacy trials and I realized that these trials, they could have learned a lot from the methodology that we have laid out with SAVI, really, and that is efficacy and that's not safety. So one of the interesting things about the vaccine efficacy trials is that um, the, the outcome typically is symptomatic COVID-19 disease, but the proportions that are being reported in the published papers in, in the media, they're typically half of the Kaplan-Meier curves that are plotted in these papers. And the good news is that does not affect vaccine efficacy because you see the same picture in both arms, um, but it informs about um, absolute disease burden, of course. And what we have demonstrated in SAVI is that there is no methodological guarantee that it does not affect a comparison between trial arms. 
So, um, so, so the point I'm trying to make, and as Kasper said, these methods have been around for quite some time, and I believe they're common sense, and um, they apply to safety and, and beyond. And uh, really, vaccine trials are just a major common example where, where I believe um, our methods could be informative. I think that's a that's an important point. Um, very often you see these kind of things being niched in a, in a certain area here, oncology. And when you take a step back and look, yeah, as you said, not just at the trees, but the forest, you realize that, oh, it actually applies to many other uh, therapeutic areas as well. Because, um, yeah, different follow-up times you can always have for, for all kinds of different reasons. And it's not just because of, you know, treatment switching. Yeah, yeah. A very, very good point. And, uh, and, and actually, my understanding is that, that the plant, uh, the, the, the trials are planned this way. You, you plan to, to run the analysis once you have observed a certain number of events. But mm -hmm. if you simply look at the number of events by sample size, by your design, you, you are bounding your proportions in the first place. And, and there, there are methods to uh, To, to accommodate that, to, 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 to adjust for that, uh, using survival methodology. And um, that, 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 to me, is the bottom line, really. Do these methods apply to observational data, too? And uh, particular, I'm thinking about is more like safety monitoring or real-world evidence type problems. So this is a very good question. I, I think what we need to keep in mind, and that's maybe also part of the reason why these methods are difficult to implement, that Analysis of safety data has very different purposes. So one purpose is signal detection. Another purpose is uh, causality assessment. If you see an AE, is it really related to the treatment the patient is getting? Mm -hmm. And what we are interested in is kind of quantification of the absolute or relative risk and proper quantification. Um, and I think it, it is more like in so many instances, there isn't, I don't see a big distinction between clinical trial, randomized data, and real-world data. It is more like phrase the question first, what you want to assess, and then potentially survival analysis. And, and if you have differing follow-up in, in real-world data and, and censoring going on, these methods are equally uh, well-suited to, to be applied there. Yes, I fully agree with Cosmos' point of view. Um, I guess that observ observational data can be much more complicated than, than those in, in a controlled trial, but uh, that does not limit uh, the use of the methodology per se. So um, you mentioned the kind of COVID uh, example earlier. I think that, that kind of brings us back to some other discussions we already had over the last two hours um, of, of this podcast episode is that It's not just done with, you know, doing the analysis. It's all, you also need to, you know, bring in the people. You need to communicate uh, the results in, in a really good way and uh, explain these different concepts. Because in the end, it's not as in the past, here's the studies, that's a treatment effect, full stop. No, it's, it's really depends on what is the question you're answering, asking. Um, Do you see any kind of, you know, trends that statisticians are more focusing on these aspects as well? Uh, 
I, I wanted Jan to start, but uh, it seems he, he thinks equally. Um, yes, I, I, I think so very much. Uh, we, ha- we heard this before in this, uh, in this uh, podcast. I think statisticians are, are more and more aware that just throwing tables and, and dozens of tables at stakeholders is maybe not the way forward. Uh, just as an illustration uh, here at Roche, we're rebuilding the whole reporting pipeline um, using R and Shiny apps where you can also interactively kind of report data that you don't have these static outputs. And uh, I think that's the way forward, of course. And visualization, you, you can add to it what Alberto was uh, talking about. And this just broadens the way we, we have to communicate and be able to, to communicate our results. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jan, do you want to add on to this? Oh, there's, there's still silence uh, this side of the line. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult, it's an important point. It is a difficult question. Um, I was just thinking that Kaspar mentioned reports not being static. And I, well, I see a lot of reports that, uh, let's say, that, that come out of our markdown. And then sometimes my impression is that people are just satisfied with that, but they still need to think about their results and not just trust on the fact that if, let's say, there's a tiny little bit that changes on the data set, you just rerun everything and, and then you're okay. And essentially you have the output automatically. And that really gets us back, back to the need to, to apply common sense and, um, and we need to get the, the big picture right. And um, I, I don't have a perfect answer to this, but uh, we, we need to reach out between beyond, beyond just, um, you know, to doing, doing a secret science of very technical stuff, but we have to explain ourselves. And, um, um, and yeah, I think that's the best I can say about this. Let me maybe add just one little point. Um, I think it is important to recognize that when the results are in, it's important to communicate well. But I see the role of statisticians and especially the role of statisticians in drug development also very much at the design stage. If we talk about S-demands, you have to explain and to get out of the scientists, what do you guys really want to know? And you are now specific and precise what you want to know. And then we can help you design the experiment. And I think there we have a very crucial role to play. And that, that's also my experience in project teams. The statistician, maybe the, the technical uh, knowledge that the statistician adds is maybe less important than this ability to structure the problem, to get to the core of the question, and then to extract that from all the, the, the stakeholders present. Yeah, right. that, that, that is a very good point. And that gets us back to, to the design of trials and then come up all the, the technical stuff that um, I may be happy with to work with. But um, that, that's sort of really in between. And um, that is a very good point that Kasper has made. Start with a question, come up with a clever design and then come up with a meaningful analysis, which uh, may be a challenging issue. And... Uh, yeah, and, and, and then the results uh, follow that way. Yeah, and also yeah. with that, understanding how the data is generated and recorded. Yeah. And I think, you know, the the methods you were talking about, these adjustments you need to make really have to do with how does the data come about? Exactly. You know, you know and yeah. if you're losing patients for different reasons, patients dying, patients leaving the trial, that's going to bias the potential estimates of 
the adverse event rates and things like that. So I think that's really, you really nailed it there, connecting all those dots from design, execution, analysis, conclusions. Statisticians have this picture of the overall process of problem solving and getting to the answer. Yes, completely agree. Um, I think we need to make sure that estimates not are just part of the statistical section of the protocol, but it's really embedded throughout uh, all the different aspects. And because, yeah, otherwise it's completely missing the point. Thanks so much, uh, Jan Kasper, for, for being in the, on the show. And I'm really looking forward to see many more applications of, of these methodological approaches uh, in the future in different areas, in different disease, and that it really helps people to, to clarify their thinking about what is the precise question you want to answer. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Sam, Benjamin, we're at the end of our anniversary episode. What are, what are your thoughts? Well, I was reflecting on what uh, Justine had to say early on about joy. And this has been a very joyful experience. It's just been so much fun. It, and it feels not just like a, um, an information sharing session, but really a, a celebration of, of uh, the multiple years now of, of work that have gone into the podcast and, uh, and a celebration of our science and what we do for our work. I, I just am feeling very full right now of, of being a statistician and enjoying and being happy about the career that I'm in right now. Yeah, and it, and it, it is amazing to see you know, the variety that we just put into two hours. Right. So, I mean, this is just a snapshot of what we did in 200 episodes, but it is it is so, you know, so many topics. I mean, we are just scratching on the surface of it. And that is so amazing about our jobs and, you know, the job of a statistician in whatever field he, he or she is working. And putting this into one episode, it was really, as you said, it was joyful. It was really interesting to see and, and a little bit different than we, when we, than we had in in recording an episode where we, you know, deep diving more into one topic and then it, it, it's the variety and it's so awesome about, you know, this field. And uh, I'm really glad to be part of it and it's, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for both of you to, to be on the show. Uh, I think I haven't started the show as a, as a one-man show, <laughs> for sure. Um, and uh, working together um, really shows that you can, you can go a long way. Um, it probably needs a little bit more of prep time, but, but um, yeah, working together makes it much more fun uh, over, the, over the long period. So thanks, thanks so much for, for joining uh, all together here. Um, I'm surely will celebrate this episode to, tonight and... Uh, if you listen to this podcast for quite some time, you probably know uh, how I will enjoy this and how we will celebrate it. <laughs> Thanks for everybody for listening or for actually viewing today as this is a live stream on, on LinkedIn. And uh, thanks so much. Uh, see you soon next time. 
And as always, be an effective statistician. Thank you.